Welcome to this episode of On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Creative Director Ben Yabsley and SVP Head of Strategy, Brendan Volpe, join me from CNX in New York City. Uh, CNX is the internal agency for Condé Nast Publications Group. We hear the story behind the launch of the New Yorker's brand campaign, The Right Question Changes Everything. Now, this is actually one of the first times I've brought together a campaign strategist and the campaign's creative director. It was sort of an experiment, but uh, we'll definitely do it again because it was a ton of fun, and I hope you'll agree. Uh, as we all know, it's a tough time to be in the media business, and being a weekly is in many ways tougher. Uh, but news and stories don't have to be bite-sized. It's not just all bite-sized culture. There are multi-faceted stories behind the news, uh, ones that deserve to be explored from many angles. Uh, and that's why I love the description of The New Yorker as documentary-style filmmaking in print. Such a great way to describe it. However, the brand has its challenges, and we'll hear about them. And we'll, we'll also hear what is meant by the curse of the monocle. So you can see the creative work here on the episode page, along with my interpretation of the strategy in the Get To by Creator Brief format. So this is the story behind the New Yorker's brand campaign. The right question changes everything. Enjoy. So uh, great to have Brendan and Ben here. Uh, good to have you both. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us, Fergus. Really appreciate it, man. Good to be here. So uh, Ben, uh, just for, for the listeners, Ben has the Australian accent and Brendan does not. <laughs> So that's how we can differentiate between both. So, so tell us, Brendan, a little bit about the background of of the New Yorker as a brand. It, I mean, it is yep. it, it is uh, very well known in very certain circles. Can you tell us about about how uh, how you think about or how you feel it thinks about itself as a brand? Yeah, it's uh, you know, New Yorker has been around for ninety five years. It was started by a man named Harold Ross. It's always had a witty and narrative approach to storytelling. It's got a very of New York feel. I mean, it's cosmopolitan, it's sophisticated. Um, you know, we like to talk about it. It's like walking around a New York cocktail party and meeting a bunch of different interesting people who know a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and so you might get, you know, someone who knows about the senator from, I don't know, New York, or you might get uh, a story like John Hersey's Hiroshima story, which kind of evaluated the experience of people who you know lived through you know the, the end of World War II in Japan. Um, you might get the Anna Proust story, um, Brokeback Mountain, which was launched um, you know in the New Yorker. So it's just a little bit of everything, and it's always had that um, kind of uh, robust and wide breadth of storytelling, and and that's kind of what's made it special. It's it's such a unique property um, from a media and storytelling perspective that it covers a little bit of everything and. And it's always has, and that's what makes it cool. And so, who who's in its peer group? Because it, it's it's got to have a pretty. I mean, in terms of sort of in in terms of weeklies or monthlies mm. uh, in in the uh, print world or what used to be the print world. Yeah, <laughs> um, who are the who are, who are their peers? I, I would say that you know, if you were talking to David Remnick and he was saying who he competes with, um, he probably competes with the New York Times, the Atlantic. Uh, the Economist, maybe um, he probably used to also compete with uh, a magazine, which I don't even know if it still exists, is Harper's. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it is a rarefied set of, of publications. There's not a lot of brands that are willing to do what the New Yorker does. 
um, and kind of stick to it, especially now in, in, in the kind of like news and journalistic culture that we're in. I mean, it would seem that the New York Times, I mean, what he, I would expect he's saying he's, he competes with Sunday's New York Times. I would think, yeah, I think he would say he competes with them in terms of rigor, um, yeah. factual, you know, factualness. They're, they're rigorously fact-checked. New Yorkers known for it. Um, but yeah, not definitely for the, the sort of daily breaking news uh, storytelling. Even the New Yorker breaks tons of news, obviously, the most recent being the, you know, the Weinstein story through Ronan Farrow. Um, but that again happened kind of in parallel with the with the times. I mean, it's 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 much more of an in depth um, kind of if you want to know everything about anything publication. So tell us um, tell us about who the reader has historically been. How would you describe that reader? You're talking about um, college educated, uh, mostly affluent, uh, leading liberal, progressive type people. Um, but moreover, uh, these are people who are very attentive to what's happening in the world politically and culturally. Uh, they like discussing things. They like to kind of get into it and unpack ideas and questions and stories. They don't just settle for, for the surface type answers. These aren't people, in, in my opinion, who sort of doom scroll through Twitter, just reading the headlines of, of news stories and making snap judgments on them. These are people who dive in. They want to know something. And then we really want to understand kind of like all angles of, of a question. So are those are those people increasing in number in modern society or do you think they're they're decreasing? You know, there my perspective is I may be a little too idealistic, but I think there's a lot of them out there. Um, from a market research perspective, you know, we saw, you know, many millions more than current New Yorker subscribers. So whether they're growing or shrinking, there's a big population out there who wants more information, who is probably less satisfied with the current offering of, of a lot of publications because there's a, a lot more shallow news out there than, there than the New Yorker. Where am I coming from in order to be your target for going to the New Yorker? I think that's a great, that's a great question. I would look at the New Yorker and I, I would say to David, you know, he has this idea that New Yorker is a cause, it's a mission. He, he believes in creating a product that sort of punches upward from a, from a standards perspective. And for, for you or for anyone out there who's listening and thinking about like, is this a magazine for me? I would say that, you know, this is great documentary filmmaking in print. Um, it's interesting, it's really in-depth storytelling. So, you know, while David would like to think about his competitors and they are traditionally his competitors in sort of those print magazine, weekly magazine spaces, it's not really a product that's a morning news, top 10 stories kind of product. It's really yeah. a, it's going to steal time from your Netflix viewing and your Hulu viewing and your weekend reading. You know, it's, it's really something that's much more narrative, much more literary, much more, you know, kind of like long haul airplane reading, like stuff that where, where you're kind of escaping into a story rather than um, kind of just trying to catch up on like what's the hottest topic of conversation. So uh, Ben, what, uh, I mean, when you look at long form journalism, which I would consider the New Yorker, one of the leaders amongst that, um, and you look at what we're dealing with in culture in terms of sort of bite-sized appetites, um, that's got to be challenging. And, and so where do you guys see that opportunity when you look at what's happening, what's happening in culture and what the product for The New Yorker has, histor has historically been? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that the length is actually only part of what makes The New Yorker unique. Um, as Brendan spoke about, Previously, 
they really have this kind of um, narrative documentary style approach to how they cover um, subjects. You know, they write in a way that sort of puts you on the ground and you can almost smell and touch what you're reading about. Um, and this kind of uh, approach to writing is consistent across all their articles. They're short form web pieces as well. You know, there's a yeah. sense of, there's a unifying sense of like, I'd call it almost like calm curiosity that, um, uh, which is there at like, I guess, the emotion of the pieces that I put out in the world. And if you compare this to something like the New York Times um, or traditional sort of newspapers where really they're kind of um, trading in um, urgency and danger and um, they put things out in the world which kind of provoke um, a, like an emotional response, like a fight or flight kind of thing because they, they really have to sort of position themselves as you know the brands that keep you safe in troubling times and so as, and as a as a weekly there's got to be a different perspective on what the definition of news is i mean you could certainly say that even a newspaper which was printed or is printed once a day as a as the print version of it that that became almost irrelevant because the news that was printed had already been released huh. digitally <laughs> so it was so I, i'm curious when you look at the new yorker what does it see as its its role uh, in the world of media is is it is it is it news or is it just subject matter driven? I think it's more subject driven, and, and yeah. I think your your point that you called out about it being a weekly is in this day and age, it's it's totally fair question. Well, like is is that a problem for it? Um, but it's actually it, it's not a bug; it's a feature. And if you if you think about it in the context of the way Ben just described what it does around exploring a question or a topic or a person. What it, it can take the time to really explore something in a way that a, a newspaper with the demands of a daily print can't. And, and that gives it a, a lot of flexibility and power, um, especially in a time where everyone seems more rushed around getting more news out with that sense of urgency Ben described. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and you know, one other thought is the idea of what we're constantly seeing uh, in the last, uh, well, at least in higher level of intensity in the last four or years or so, is this sort of questioning and the undermining of truth and facts and mm-hmm. institutions. And and so how how does the New Yorker see its role in all of that? Is it is it truth telling? Is it does it avoid that or does it or does it try to address it more directly, such as the way that the New York Times has or CNN might have tried to? I would yeah, I would say that every journalistic entity that we we looked at or that we we're talking about in this, uh, on this uh, pod is probably of the of a shared belief that they're in some way fighting for the soul of journalism. You know, I, th- I think if you're if you're an institution like the the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or the Economist or the Atlantic or the New York Times, you know, these these are people who who have a high degree of integrity and, and place a lot of value and. Uh, doing diligent reporting and fact checking, and, and you know, getting multiple sources around a you know a topic, so that they're not um, looking at things narrowly. So I think that, I think the way the New Yorker kind of tries to distinguish itself is is not just through being factual, because honestly, like it'd be tough to argue that they're more or less factual than any of those I mentioned. I think what they try to do is is put this put a human context to every story, um, which Ben alluded to. But if you read a New Yorker story, a feature article, it starts with a person in a place experiencing something. And then it zooms out to explore an issue from all dimensions. And, and I think 
that human face goes a long way. And I think the other side of it uh, that we've talked a little bit about is that that narrative structure, that truly literary approach to storytelling that does make it ultimately feel like a documentary rather than a typical news story. There is a, you know, a known structure of, of the way a news story gets written. And the New Yorker absolutely 100% breaks that every time because they lead with emotions and humanity rather than just the facts of the matter. You know, that thought of, a, of, of documentary filmmaking and print is a pretty a pretty interesting line. Is that something that you ever sort of explored as a potential creative area to explore? Because it seems like it'll be very, very rich, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that approach to how they write and construct their articles was really consistent in the way that um, David Remnick gave us feedback because uh, you can see he's very, um, he cares as much about not just saying something intelligent, but like disp- like uh, bringing it to life in an intelligent way as well. So the way that uh, a New Yorker article is constructed, it kind of, it doesn't take a direct line in the same way that um, the New York Times or, or any kind of newspaper article kind of just delivers the facts. They kind of, it, it meanders and you go on a walk with them and they don't just lead you to the answer of a question. They might might explore some um, some side roads where they sort of they explore poten- like a potential answer to a question, and then they maybe decide that that's not the right question, um, the right answer for for certain reasons, and then they go and explore a different sort of uh, area, and then they come back. And so by the time that you arrive at the answer to the to the stated question, stated or not stated, you not only understand the answer that you also understand the space in a way that is more holistic and you understand what other answers could be and you have an opinion on why perhaps they aren't the answer so that that sort of um kind of gives you a little bit more of a holistic understanding of uh of, of a topic so brendan uh, is it is it david remnick who comes to you guys at cnx and sits down and says i'd like to consider doing a campaign or is somebody else and then and then what what is the problem or the challenge sure. that the campaign's trying to address uh it, a very funny story about uh how that happens um at least i find it very funny we um we start off or i start off in january in late january early february uh, a, a lovely woman named monica ray who works on the consumer marketing side uh, contacts me and my boss and says, hey, I'd love to sit down and talk about a potential New Yorker campaign. Now, this to me is like my dream. I've been reading the New Yorker for 20 years. I can't wait for it. And she <laughs> sets up an, an informational lunch meeting with with David. Now, I'm getting to meet this guy who is my idol. And he sits down and he's like, I really love you know, what the New York Times did. I think we have an interesting story to tell. I think we merit the kind of investment in an ad campaign. And I would like you to go get me Droga 5. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was really awesome. And so my boss had a really great re- retort. He was just like, he's, he's a really funny guy. And he said, because, are, they, because they did the New York Times campaign. The New York, yeah, exactly. Because they yeah. did the New York Times campaign. And my boss kind of smiles at him. He says, we're your Droga 5. <laughs> and, nice. Um, and I sort of just sheepishly kind of hid my face and, and hopefully didn't look too sick um, when, when you said that. But. 
Yeah, you also, I mean, you did bring them in Australian, so... I, mean, I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a, a Droga half rather than yeah. a Droga 5, maybe. <laughs> That's right. Dro- yeah. Droga 5B, yeah. So um, what what was the business challenge that you yes. guys were... were uh, what was the ask from sure. Monica and from David? Mm-hmm. So the New Yorker doesn't have an awareness problem. I mean, the New Yorker's been around for so long. Um, it, it's it's obviously very distinctive. People know it's cartoons. People know the uh, the cartoon covers. Um, what they had was a familiarity problem. People know the New Yorker, but they don't know what it really is. Um, you know, if you're one of these people who doesn't read it, and you you look at the cover art, there's no text other than the New Yorker, you know, title on it. Um, you, you see kind of clever, witty cartoons maybe in your in your newsfeed, um, and and you probably think of liberal coastal elites. Um, you think of you know lots of politics, and you might think of like really dense really complicated storytelling. Um, and we call this the curse of the monocle, right? You know, the New Yorker's known for that, you know, kind of monocle cartoon. Yeah. And, you know, for a couple of years, you know, they, they haven't been able to sort of break through and reach this audience that does, you know, hunger for deeper narrative storytelling um, just through the quality of the content. They needed something else. So we needed to break through and create a level of familiarity about what the New Yorker offers. Um, and, and that's kind of where we started. What, what was really happening is that the market for people who look like New Yorker readers is about 25 times bigger than the actual subscriber base. So what, what they're seeing is like, wow, they have this huge opportunity with this great brand, with, you know, with a, a loyal subscriber base. We need to accelerate this rate of subscription to take as much advantage of this moment as possible where the New Yorker is exceptionally relevant. So where, what, is, what is that... What is that potential subscriber reading? It's probably around 24 million. Um, yeah, it's probably about 24 million people. And, and that's people who are college educated, like I said, who, who read um, one or multiple of the publications that we've been talking about, uh, who are relatively affluent and who display certain psychographic traits around curiosity, questioning, and sort of interrogating uh, topics of interest. So they're reading The Economist, they're reading The Atlantic, they're reading maybe The New York uh, Times. Wall, yeah, Wall Street Journal. Washington Wall Street Post. Journal. Yep. So Ben, well, what, about, what about for you? What, what did you kind of see as the, as when, you, when it was presented to you initially, what was the business problem that was, you were being asked to solve? Well, there's two things, I guess. Um, if you have a look at, uh, I, I think really what they needed to do was challenge some misconceptions about the, the magazine. As Brendan said, Everyone knows what the New Yorker is, but they don't know like why it exists. You know, they know it's a thing, but they don't know or they don't understand or they don't realize that it could actually be a thing for them. Um, so they had misconceptions about it. They think that the content is prohibitively highbrow. It's you open uh, it's not a, a magazine that um, sort of reaches out to you and pulls you in from a design perspective in the same way that say like a wired magazine does. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you're, you're confronted by like quite a lot of text and people make uh, misconceptions based off that. They think that because the, you know, the, the, the articles are long and there's a lot of images that the, the writing style is dry. Um, and they think that, uh, you know, you look at the front cover you see Eustace Tilly, this uh, this um, you know, enduring cartoon that has always been on the front cover, and people don't understand that that was actually 
created as a joke to like lampoon the upper crust of society. <laughs> People look at that these days and they think, oh, that's the New Yorker sort of depicting their reader. And um, so these there are all these things about the magazine which kind of point it um, in a direction which people don't think is necessarily for them. So from a very sort of brand-centric perspective, we needed to correct those misconceptions and get people to feel the emotional benefit of the magazine without ever having actually picked it up. So are you, would you describe yourself, uh, Ben, as being a, um, a creative person who loves to dig into the details or would, are you somebody who prefers things to be very concise? And, and when you look at Brendan, was, it, was Brendan sort of able to bring initially to you what you wanted and in the way you wanted it? Yeah. And, how, and what way was that initially? I love, um, I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about the strategy. Uh, and personally, I've really enjoyed um, working collabor- collaboratively with, with Brendan to sort of figure out exactly what we should be seeing. Because the thing is, it's really hard. I, I would imagine it would be very hard as a strategist to sort of um, pluck that that one line out of the air at the very start of the process because a lot of the time you only only really sort of get there through a bit of starting the sort of the creative development process as well. And so I, I love that we our two processes um, overlap um, uh, the end of his and the start of mine and then um, we, we get to this place where we have like real open, honest conversations and we – we find, uh, you know, the, the strategy that, or the, or the line that sort of um, points us in, in the right direction. And in this, in this case, what, what we did really is we, we took all that, that sort of space that he um, sort of brought to life and we sort of created four or five or, or six different platforms, which were all kind of like um, quite, you know, different ways of articulating that, that strategy. And then we just pressure tested it with, um, with creative work. And we, we, we put a lot of those in front of David Remnick and the team. How would you define, Ben, what the strategy behind the campaign is? I think, um, we, I think we went through a few revs on the proposition. Um, going back just a quick step, um, we had sort of taken the research that we did and, and did a positioning and, 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 the, and the positioning line that would matter to consumer consumers is uh, the idea that it's it's good to be curious. It's not just a nice thing to be curious. It's actually a virtue. And, and so we've been, we were toying with this notion of the importance of curiosity, um, curiosity in the way the New Yorker explores topics um, in the intersection of, with um, people in this, in this market who really are looking for more and deeper answers that, again, the kind you get in, in maybe a documentary. Uh, and so I started with this notion uh, that doubt is a strength um, and then moved, uh, I think, through some conversations with Ben and, and some of the other creative folks um, to a line that I think Ben crafted or at least got pretty close on is this notion that, that the world is more interesting the closer you look at it. Um, and then we sort, of, we sort of played with that for a little while, but I, I think finally it landed on you are what you read. So Ben, would you do? Do you recall it that way too? I think the the great thing about you are what you read is it it is a little bit broader and it doesn't sort of uh, it doesn't sort of narrow us into a consumer facing line too much. It is it is a brand point of point of view, you know, and we can articulate that in, in, in lots of different ways. Um, 
I think uh, Brendan should get like a lot of credit for the, um, the right question changes everything because it actually I think there was a there was a quote in Brendan's research from one of the um, from one of the writers. I, it wasn't actually attributed to anyone, so I wonder who it was actually from. But it said the pieces keep on getting richer and richer because the editors keep asking questions. Um, and that was one thing that kind of like just sort of jumped out to a bunch of us and sort of was an interesting way to sort of put you are what you read um, in, con- in context. And so what, as I said before, we sort of, we took you are what you read and we we articulated that in sort of four or five different ways. Um, and then it was only through pressure testing them with a bit of creative work that we sort of were able to sort of coalesce. So were there were there different concepts then when you say the different ideas that fell out of the into that or out of that bucket are they different creative uh, directions that you could have gone in Ben and yeah. can you share anything with us um, yeah but I guess there were different sort of campaign platforms so I think as Brendan mentioned one was about the world's more fascinating the closer you look at it I think we did one which was like a really straight articulation of you are what you read so the whole thing about the world's more fascinating the closer you look. That was actually an attempt to just do uh, a campaign that pretty much only used images because we, we thought, because we would more was trying to sort of lean into some sort of uh, consumer attention. Like, what's the what's the misconception that someone has about the brand? And so part of it was like, all right, well, if people think that the magazine is impenetrable how do we make it as immediate as possible like how how can we get someone to feel the benefit of the magazine like that that feeling of holding the magazine and feeling like you could end up anywhere in the world like the new yorker actually one of the best photo blogs on 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 the internet is um the new yorker the new yorker uh photo booth like the the photography that they um that they support and use in the magazine is incredible. And so we had this whole platform that just used that photography as a way to sort of, as a shorthand for the places that the, um, the writing takes you. Um, and I think that probably got, um, that, that was probably the runner up, I think. Yeah, it sounds think, wonderful. They, yeah. Well, to be honest, I think what it did, it was a very useful tool in selling our approach for, um, the right question changes everything because I think what it did was, was help us all understand the the importance of the visual side of this and that we can use imagery as, as a shorthand to get people into an emotional state and get them to feel the wonder of the magazine and the breadth of the subject matter. So you can walk down, originally this was going to be an outdoor campaign, so you could walk down a, a subway platform and see 15 ads for the, for the New Yorker and without reading a word, get a, a sense of like the breadth of subject matter. Um, so what we did is we kind of like, we took that, the DNA of that and, and brought it into our, our creative approach for the right question changes everything, but just added like the um, you know, the writing on top. I, I, I think we were never going to get away with a, a campaign that had no words. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so when you were pressure testing these, you, you, part of that process was obviously, I assume, putting it in front of Monica, and David yeah. Remnick, and, and that was the yeah. pressure testing, and, and just exploring it conceptually to see if it, if it was fruitful. Um, yeah. what, and so there was there were three or four different things out there, Brendan. So did, did you guys go in with uh, 
with the clear favorite? Did you come out? I know you, I know you can't uh, probably lean in too much into this question, but um, did you, did you, did you come out with one of those campaigns or did you end up coming out with a blend of them? Is that, is, did, is what got published ultimately a blend of what was on the table? So here's the, I think here's the supreme irony of this is that I think the right question changes everything was probably the second idea that we ever showed uh, David. Uh, in, in the first first creative presentation, what's funny is we we walk out of the first presentation after presenting four, you know, three or four ideas. We come back a couple weeks later and we kept intact the second idea. The right question changes everything. I think all the other ideas changed, if I'm correct, Ben. Um, mm. And he loves absolutely like starts looking around the room to see his other editors who are also involved um, agree. But he fell immediately in love with the right question changes everything. And it's, it's such a, a funny thing. Like I've never done that with a client before where you just bring them back the same idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to see if it works. Well, to be to be fair, Brandon, I think um, <laughs> I remember that first uh, <laughs> that that first presentation. Well, um, uh, it was not pretty. Um, <laughs> we were so advertising heavy in in the ways that we sort of brought um, that thought to life. So when Brendan, when you say like we brought him the idea of the right question changes everything, that was what we were saying. Well, that's the so that was the brand the campaign platform but the way that we brought it to life to sort of prove it out and sort of give it some sort of dimension to him was completely wrong mm-hmm. we were just yeah being like way too tricky um for, for example we would, ben to share a little bit more about that yeah well i think um we were trying to make an advertising uh argument for questions like and this is one thing that sort of where we ended up, what we have now is a very, very simple campaign um, that is, is very restrained, but it took a long time to get there because our in, at first, <laughs> our initial instincts were like, all right, well, what's the manifesto that sort of, what's the love letter to questions that we can put out into the world? And that, as we've kind of discussed before, is not a very New York New Yorker approach to doing something. They don't they don't explain things they like they they paint a picture by by um giving you examples um, they never come out and just kind of make an argument for something um they they put the things in front of you and let you sort of draw your own conclusions so do, so every time we sort of created work that felt like we were making the um academic argument for why questions are important it, the work just seemed to feel too generic and David very quickly felt that he couldn't see his brand um, represented in what we were um, pitching him. So he had that that feeling of the, the work we put in front of him not representing how he felt about the brand. That kind of <laughs> visceral feeling overshadowed the, the, the glimmer of, of hope that was in there, which was, hey, we're actually saying the right thing. We're just saying it in a, in a in a in a way that's way too complex and too tricksy and not very new yorker at all so a lot so, of this sorry go on so what what is it about what is different in the way that you've ultimately expressed it visually or even in words um that made it different for him what is it now that makes it work yeah. well well um we got out of the way of the content. Um, we realized that we were sitting on a gold mine. Like we, 
I think it took a while to sort of sort of take a step back and have a bit of humility and be like, well, you know, I don't think as advertisers and creative people we're ever going to really come up with a creative way that can make the case for why questions are important and do that in a better way than the actual content can sell itself. So really what we needed to do was trust the content and take away the things, um, take away the barrier to entry that, that people have with the New Yorker. So as I said before, if it's if people think it's impenetrable, just make it as immediate as possible. Um, and if people think that the subject matter is too narrow, make it as relatable and broad as possible. So those two things became our sort of like guiding um uh, our guideposts, so to speak. And then we, uh, I mean, I think we had a lot of steering, obviously, through, through, through David. And like we understood very quickly that elegance is important. So we sort of stripped and paired everything back. And if it wasn't absolutely necessary, then it kind of got stripped out. So it took a while to sort of get to that point. The thing that's also interesting, if I just sort of mention, is that it was a really interesting process for us because David is not a normal marketing client. Normally we work for people who are kind of guardians of a brand, but David is the brand himself. His subjective opinion is the New Yorker. That's the thing that guides um, the creation of the magazine and the actual and product himself. So he gives feedback in a very intuitive way. It either feels like the New Yorker to him or it doesn't. Um, and it took a while for us to sort of develop a shared language so that we could um, ex- he could explain to us why things didn't feel um, uh, like it represented the New Yorker. And at the start of the process, that very first sort of presentation, we didn't have that shared language yet and it was a, it was a little bumpy. But we got th- through that with communication and building trust and um, got there in the end. So how, let's talk a little bit about and sort of bore into a little bit the idea of the right question changes everything where where did that come from and what makes that uh, unique to the new yorker um well there's two things i guess that make it unique i mean i don't think anyone can sort of own the concept of questions we kind of felt like what we needed to do very quickly was qualify that with the right question because um we we felt emboldened that we were coming from a place that was true for the brand because it was literally came out of the um the mouth of someone who worked there you know the pieces keep getting richer and richer because the editors keep asking questions and if you read um as we said the way that these articles are constructed they're you can almost see that question asking process evolve um during over the course of the article and maybe the the space that we started off in the article isn't necessarily where we end up and we've explored a whole bunch of questions and we land on the question that sort of um, brings greater understanding to like a, a subject. And they are, as we mentioned before, they're only able to do that because they have more time than um, some of the, the competitor publications that we're talking about. So we felt that this was true enough to the brand to be interesting and um, represent something that is true to the DNA of what the publication publication is, but it was broad enough that we could um, celebrate the entire spectrum of um, subject matter. So 
the right question, we can prove that in funny and flippant ways, like exploring how emojis get you know get made. <laughs> like who right. decides what gets to be an emoji? You know, that's that's interesting. Um, or, or we can sort of celebrate that in more weighty, important ways, like what does it take to stand up to a predator, um, like Ronan, Ronan Farrow's Weinstein reporting. Um, so, so once we felt that was how we proved it to ourselves, is, is we yeah. only have something if it works and allows to give us that sort of sense of um, scale and, and scope. So a couple of final things. Um, one, the campaign was obviously impacted by the pandemic. I'm not obviously, you can explain why, but uh, it, it was originally set to be a much broader initiative, but it's sort of changed in terms of its tactical rollout. Uh, I'm curious to hear about that and, and really curious to understand um, the, the, the why San Francisco, Chicago, and Hartford, Connecticut were picked as the three markets because I think they were there. This the, I think your your thinking behind that was rooted in those almost being culturally different markets and that they might react differently to the campaign. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. Obviously, the, the pandemic changed the, the rollout plan so substantially. Um, it was supposed to roll out, I think, in April, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, Ben. Um, and obviously, that you know kind of blew up. The markets, um, specifically for the digital rollout, not only are different culturally, but they also reflect uh, the segmentation that was done and different mindsets. We, you know, there are five uh, segments of this you know, this larger market that we identified, and we think that there are three uh, that are both you know big enough and uh, maybe more likely to be emotionally connected to the to the New Yorker enough to merit investment in. Um, so this is is being used as as sort of a series of test cases pardon me, test cases for, you know, those audiences. And what, tell us about those three different audiences. And those were sort of priority in terms of priority or they were, they were just viewed as being distinct from each other? They're distinct enough from each other. They all share sort of common New Yorker reader traits, right? Uh, educated, affluent readers, things of that nature. I would think of it in a very simple terms as those who skew more liberal and those who skew more conservative on a spectrum. And you know, you know, you could think San Francisco is probably the most liberal <laughs> of them. Um, I think that audience, that name, is liberal and li- literary. Is that is sort of a segment name? Um, I won't know the rest of them, but uh, then uh, Hartford is slightly less liberal, and then Chicago of the three is the most conservative um, in, in terms of mindset. And it's not because there's not a mix of each of those segments in all of those cities. It's it's that they're more represented in those cities than elsewhere. Um, so they're just kind of like a, a larger share of the New Yorker audience within those uh, regions. And then what, what are your, are there different executions going against each of those three markets or is it, is it, is it, is it the same creative executions in all three? It's the same, it's the same uh, creative executions. And I think that the real, the test is to see which of the segments are actually, you know, the, the, the most likely to respond. Or conversely, maybe, you know, I think we've done some creative testing already, so I'm, I'm pretty confident in the creative generally. I think it's more about the, the resonance it has from a brand tracking perspective. Um, and certainly downstream, you know, um, visits and subscribers um, as well. But mostly this is focused on, are we, are we generating awareness in the segments that we care about? Is the message resonating where you know, they become, uh, the audience becomes not just aware or, or familiar with the brand, but can recall it um, without being prompted? And are they more likely to pay attention when the New Yorker speaks in the future? 
And, and so this is being quantitatively tracked. Is that how you're measuring yes. it? Yes. Yep. And, it's, and it, is, is there a call to action to subscribe as part of this campaign or is, is that not part of your sort of your, uh, your uh, KPIs initially? There is a CTA on the landing page on NewYorker.com, but not in the creative itself because this is meant to be more upper funnel than, than that. One of the things that's interesting to me is that it doesn't seem that the New Yorker, because you guys did a segmentation study, you did some quant work, uh, and I'm sure a lot of qual work, internal and external with interviews. It doesn't seem to me, from what we've talked about so far, that the New Yorker was as interested in understanding how it might have to change uh, as it was just of about ex- ex- exposing or, sim- or simplifying or communicating what it is that's unique about it. Uh, is that fair to say, or am I reading that wrong? I, th- I think you're 100% right. I, I, I think if we had come in, even, you know, th- there's a lot of very useful, very uh, um, profound information in, in some of the research decks that were, that were put together. Um, and, and there are some opportunities, certainly, where we could have proposed some changes. I One, I, I don't think the the magazine needed to change. Um, its business, you know, over the last four or five years is, is growing at, at a very good rate. Uh, like I said, they don't have a leaky bucket to say that to David, like, Hey, you have this problem that you, you know, from a, from a behavior perspective that you need to address. Um, it, I don't think it would have been entirely intellectually, intellectually honest. There are certainly opportunities. Every brand can get a little better at certain types of behavior. Um, but what we really want to do is amplify what they're doing well. And I think if, if there's some, simpler behaviors and subtler behaviors that we we get to like push on um over the next six to nine months and i think there will be um they'll be nearly invisible to most people now what what would be an example of that well uh david has a few really interesting platforms that uh i think he could weaponize um first is the new yorker radio hour it's a podcast that he hosts uh weekly um i think it's on wnyc and there are some simple mechanisms he could use around this notion of question and the virtues of curiosity that he could bake into the way he sets up his, his stories there. Um, yeah. that, would, that would be subtle, again, but I think would consi- you know, kind of create a consistent drumbeat around what The New Yorker stands for and what it's all about. Kind of the way that the, the New York Times on its daily podcast always features the reporters and they always kind of share with you how, you know, how they got to the truth. I, I think, you know, kind of having some way to expose how we get to interesting questions and explore um, the topics that we do uh, would be really, really powerful. Um, another would be um, the, the, the New Yorker Festival, which is a, an annual event uh, often held at like Lincoln Center or something like that in New York, where, you know, David and celebrities and other reporters come in and, and perform or talk or, or just get interviewed. And I think um, those forums could be profoundly um, enhanced with a, you know, a, a clear focus on exploring the most uh, interesting questions from the, you know, from the people that they're talking with or the stories that they're talking about. Brendan and uh, Ben, thank you guys both for, for coming on the episode. Uh, the, uh, the campaign is, uh, is live now. It's, it, it's running now. Isn't that, isn't it fair to say we're in, we're now July one or, or I mean, it's been out for a number of weeks, right? Uh, just about a week and a half. Just about a week and a half. And it's running in your area. So please, Fergus, click on all the ads on your Instagram. (laughs) Absolutely. I will do that for sure. Guys, thanks a lot for coming on this episode. And um, we'll have the creative work displayed 
on the uh, episode page so people can click through it. And uh, there's there's no film yet as part of this. It's it's uh, it's sort of a, a digital display a- a campaign at this point. There are, there are, yeah, there, are there are two um, thirty second films um, that that bring uh, different articles to life in a little bit more detail. So. Oh, I'd love to see those. Uh, we'll, and we'll put those up sure. too. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Thank you both for uh, for being a part of the show, and um, and it's great having you both on. This is an experiment in creative and strategic uh, <laughs> discussion. So I think it was very cool. We appreciate it. Thank and you, Fergus. Yeah, and we'll see everybody on the next episode.